Okay, we're just on the tail end of the Psalms of Ascent, 133 and 134. Um, and they're running beautifully into fellowships, I think. As I, the more I look at it, the more it's running into um, what it's like to be in community, communion with each other. Because we're not, in the days that are coming, we're not going to be able to get away with superficial Christianity. Um, because God is bringing everything to the surface. Sin is cropping up all over the place in the body of Christ, but that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's a good thing because it means that the Holy Spirit is just bringing things to light. Uh, and so we mustn't be judgmental with one another, but help one another along and, and give the mercy that God's given us. Because uh, if we look at how much mercy we've been given, we'll understand where the other guy is. Um, so he desires mercy. Not judgment. Didn't know it was going there for a start. So just recapping, we are uh, galloping through to the Psalm 133 and 134. Um, so we've set our hearts on pilgrimage looking at these things, these Psalms. And the beginning of the place of pilgrimage we saw was to have a deep desire to be close to God. And that to do that we had to make a decision to leave the edge of the Christian experience and go right in. We saw that distress was real, asked Sarah. And we learned that we must focus our lives on what are God's priorities and make them ours. Uh, we learned that it's not a journey on our own, but it's one that we make together. We're not um, Rambos or whatever you call them. It's let us go up to the house of the Lord, not, not on our own, not in isolation. Um, and we saw that the Psalms contain one of the hardest lessons of pilgrimage and that was waiting on the Lord and we must have a steadfast endurance and confident expectation that God will act on our behalf and he takes us into those narrow places just to hold us there so that we will see that he has got a plan and he is working it out and we just got to sit quiet and wait for it to come out so we learnt the lesson of trusting God and having confidence. And what I personally want to bring you into is a place of expressing that confidence before God. Because as you express your confidence, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And that is why I had to get you confessing out before you started. Because you hear yourself. If you're silent in what you do, it's like that rabbit I've got with the bent ears. God showed me once that if your ears are bent down like that, all you're hearing is your own negativity. But if you start praising God, your ears are going up because you're responding to him. And it has to come out of our mouths. It's thanksgiving, praise and worship in that order. So it has to be spoken out. Not good for us Brits, we don't like it. I always pray silently, I hear people say. And I think, well, yeah, good. Um, I know God can hear it just the same. But it actually gave us a mouth for us to do something with it. And we use that mouth quite freely when it's for other things. It's the praise and the worship of God that we find it hard to do. But we need to start opening it and expressing confidence in him. Because it's in thanksgiving, it says we enter his gates with that thanksgiving and his courts with praise in the Psalms, doesn't it? And then you come into worship. If you looked at the tabernacle, it's thanksgiving, praise and worship. And in worship, you get into the Holy of Holies. And it's in worship where you receive revelation. 
just this morning I, I I've got mis I get myself into frequent pickles and I got into one this morning. I've been getting into it over the last few days actually. I suddenly realised that I was striving uh, over getting something for the school in the summer. Um, we have a summer school coming up first week in July. You may not have known about that because you've been a bit missing a bit. Mm. Um, and I was really trying to squeeze the lemon. And the more I tried to get something out of God, the less actually happened. I would read things, dry as a bone. Okay, I'll listen to a tape. And I found myself, I think I'm going from one thing to the other. And suddenly I said to the Lord last night, I said, I think I'm striving. There was a deathly silence, which meant yes. So I got up this morning and t fought to, to still myself because I got n n a diddly squat for this morning. And I thought, well, that's okay. I don't mind. Nothing for Saturday as well. That's okay. Um, but I thought I must do what I teach. So I went into thanksgiving, praise and worship. And you can guess what started to happen. The first thing I got was, as for you, stand here by me and, and I will and teach you all, all the things that you t have to teach them, which is in Deuteronomy. It was a scripture that has come to me time and time and time ago. I've got so many dates by it, I'm running out of space in the Bible. And I thought... I know why it's been so difficult. It's so that I can identify when people say, I can't get into stillness with God, I can't do it. And so the Lord is allowing me to experience it so that I will know what it feels like not being able to shut this thing up, you know. But uh, it was Janice, I think, the other day I was speaking to Janice uh, Richards. Um, and she said how easy it is to rape God to try to get something out of him and it has the effect of raping him we're trying to get something out of him and I realized that 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 is what I was doing I was trying to get something out of him you can't all you can do is receive so you've got to be in a place to receive we're re receivers but we tend to want to grasp something and that's what I was doing but you have to learn these lessons you know I can't teach on something I haven't experienced so I had a difficult couple of days but that's fine so we found that the hardest lesson was uh, waiting in confident expectation trusting and we saw that we must sow in order to reap we called to maturity and one of the first priorities in our spiritual pilgrimage we found was the family and families are our first order of service and our first level of ministry and marriage is holy to God. Um, we saw also about testing and trials producing humility. I'm just racing through this so that we can get to where we're going. And 131, Psalm 131, we found that humility, it was the shortest psalm but the longest one to live because it was the supreme virtue of the pilgrimage. Humility recognizes that God is all in all and he is everything. And by our own decision and choice, we must make ourselves low so that he may be lifted high. It says in Peter, doesn't it? Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You try to exalt yourself, sure as eggs is eggs, he will bring you down. Because it's not good for us. 
and we found that the way of a pilgrim is the way of passion for the things of God that as we developed that passion we entered into the presence and power of God we found there's no shortcut um, we just can't do it there isn't a shortcut God may fast track you but it's still not a short track when he fast uh, cut when he fast tracks you all it means is that you get your trials one after the other bang 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 <laughs> you've no sooner gone out of one and you're into the next one that's it so we found that the way of a pilgrim is the way of passion for the things of God and coming into Psalm 133 we're seeing that this psalm deals with an issue of vital concern to God and that is unity the unity of the saints and the building of his church and unity is very dear to God because it says how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity and uh, it's next to impossible <laughs> it is the most difficult thing because we've all got our own opinions our all likes and our dislikes toes get trodden on there's John's lovely toe as a lovely uh, visual aid <laughs> don't tread on his toe uh, we get upset, we get offended. So what are we going to do with it? Uh, if we take the Ten Commandments written, you'll find that four are towards God and six deal with our relationships to one another. And this is where all flesh has to die in his manifest presence. What's going to happen if you're out with someone is that one of you is going to have to give way had a situation the other day got an urgent phone call this 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 and this is happening my fleshly response was take them out and sit them down and tell them <laughs> I said I'll pray about it so the following morning I felt the Lord say to me it's a control issue they both want control one of them's got to step down so I phoned the person concerned and said it's a control issue what do you mean well one of you's got to step down well, why isn't God speaking to the other person? I said, because it just happens to be speaking to you and you're the one that rang me. So the answer is, sweetheart, if you want peace in this situation, step out of the argument. <laughs> Very swift, short conversation. Later that evening, phone call. You're right. I did it. We had a meeting, half past seven. Absolutely brilliant steam's gone out of the situation all the argument is solved and settled why because someone laid down and died it's never worth it when you're head to head with someone insisting on your rights i think it's tony morton <laughs> he tells the story of going into a shop i might have told you this one before for some batteries and i don't remember the detail of it but the shop assistant insisted that she was right. He knew she was wrong. And he thought, I can either die for these batteries and show her I'm right, or I can lay, lay it down. You know, it's, it's issues like that, as simple as that. So he laid it down. And the whole argument that would have been just dissipated. We've got choices, decisions to make. For some reason or other, God's led me to something about, about a fence this morning. Um, I don't quite know how it's going to come out. Um, 
I don't know quite how I got to it. I'll carry on here a bit. So harmony and unity of the people of God is very important to God. So the lesson that we need to emphasize from Psalm 133 is that of the bond of brotherhood. It's essential for entering into the presence and power of God and receiving his anointing of blessing and peace. Because it says how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. That's where the oil comes down of anointing. Twice in quick succession, Monday night, Tuesday morning, I had people speak to me about prayer meetings. <laughs> Have you ever been at a prayer meeting where it's like a ping pong match? Where one person's praying one thing and the other person don't agree with that, so the other person prays something else, you know, and it's just like there is a fight going on in a prayer meeting. Uh, on in the one hand, it, it distressed the person concerned no end, uh, and and they they just wanted to drop it all. You see, this is the sort of thing that makes people want to drop Christianity because the carnality of Christians, they want to drop it. Let's call it what it is. It's carnality. We're not operating in the spirit at all. We can walk around like we're sitting on cloud nine and a puff of spiritual what's it. But actually, when push comes to shove, what do you do when someone stands on your toe? Yeah. It's what comes out of your mouth at a time like that is when you know how dealt with you are. The fruit of kindness grows in bad soil. The fruit of anything of the spirit grows in bad soil. So someone's unkind to you, what do you do? you unkind back? Or are you kind to them? Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. But you have to make a choice, because you'd actually like to say, as Graham would say, I know something about you too, pal. That's <laughs> the way he says it. I know something about you too, pal. And there's a classic story of when he, you know, you all know this one about him when he had to fast for 30 odd days. Do you know that one? Yeah, that's right. No, don't know that one. No. Um, he said he had this relationship with a guy in the church. He loved to hate him. Love-hate relationship. He loved to hate him and the other one hated to love him. So they had this relationship. Then he found out something about this man in the church and he thought, right, gotcha. So he's on his way now to tell this man, I know about this secret sin, relishing it all the way. Suddenly the Lord said to him, where are you going? He said, oh, I'm going to tell so-and-so what he said. Take another step, you're a dead man. Finished. Your ministry is over. Turn round, go home, fast till I tell you to stop. Thirty days later, the Lord said to him, now go and see the man. And he pleads with the Lord for two or three days not to go because he doesn't want to do this thing because God has so dealt with his heart in that 30 days that he just, can't, he just doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to hurt the man. Go and see him. Tell him I sent you. Knocks on the door. Man opens the door. Graham looks at him and says, God sent me. The man bursts into tears and says, Thank you so much. For the last 30 days, I've been praying that God would, someone would send me someone. I've got this terrible, unconfessed sin. God knows how to deal with these things, and he doesn't need us doing it with a five-band hammer, you know, because I've done it, been there, seen it, done it. I have done it the wrong way, and now I'm showing you the right way. <laughs>
because there is a way to do it. And if you're going to learn to live in harmony with the body of Christ, it means you've actually got to determine that this flesh is going to go under um, because they have a way of actually <laughs> treading on your toes. <laughs> Something shocking and causing offence. <laughs> <laughs> I think that somehow or other I got into Matthew 18. <laughs> um, so let's just pop into there for a minute because I think the Lord wants to say something about this whole business. The word offence is scandalizo. It's from where we get our word scandal from. Scandalo. Scandalo. Have you been scandalized recently? I think it's Matthew 18. I saw an interesting thing in this this morning too. It's this prayer of agreement business. I saw that there too. Because um, it starts off instruction about humility, which is interesting because uh, 131 was all about humility and now we're in 133 and it's about living in... Um, Harmony. So I'll read a bit and see where the Lord uh, stops. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this, in my name, receives me. That doesn't mean that you've got to become childish or childlike. It means teachable. Children are teachable. They let you teach them because they know they don't know. They want to know. They've got a sense of wonder. They want to find out. So when he's saying, unless you are converted and become as children, it's meaning become teachable and maintain a sense of wonder like a child. And then he goes on to talk in verse 15 about the offended brother. And verse 19 has been taken out of context, as I saw this morning, absolutely, completely out of context. Because it's in the context of offence. Uh, it's what is so often called the prayer of agreement. If you, any two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Goodo, agree with me, I want a Rolls Royce. They take that that's out completely out of context. Actually, what this whole thing is talking about is social order in the church and a serious offence that is meant going to court. You know, in Corinthians it says it's it's... It's uh, said that you take one another to court. How how dare you do that, really, when you're brothers in the Lord? So it's all about the offended brother and sin against one another. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of what two or three witnesses, every word may be established. This is talking about church order. This is where 
where it's linking in so much with fellowship life um, that if there is an offence between brothers or brother and sister or sisters within the body of Christ um, and it cannot be resolved, then you go to the leadership together and say, you know, we've got this problem. But if you have an accusation against another person, you've got to find two or three witnesses to the same thing. I mean, how often do we hear it flying about, you know, accusation about brother or sister or person within the body of Christ? Um, this was the whole issue that, that the people were talking to me about, about in the prayer meeting, you know. It's just... Would you stop? And if he refuses to tell them, to, to, to hear, tell it to the church, so it brings comes before the whole congregation. But if he re refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like the heathen and the tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, is another one. How many times have you heard this one in the context of spiritual warfare? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven nothing to do with spiritual warfare the truth of it is he's saying assuredly I say to you whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven in other words I'm giving you the authority to make these decisions as leadership and if you forbid it it's forbidden in heaven because you're getting your instructions from there and whatever you loose or allow on earth will be allowed so it's nothing to do with spiritual warfare and the next one, I say to you, if you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That is if two judges agree on any part. It's a legal issue. God will honor their verdict. So you bring something to the leadership. They pray about it. They seek the Lord's view on it. They bring a verdict. It will be done. See the difference between how it's been used in the church and the truth of the issue. Two things that have got to do with offence have been taken out of context and used. One is spiritual warfare and one is getting what you want. <laughs> Western mindset coming to Hebrew book. That's what you've got there. So it's incredible. So for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. In the other words, I can see what's going on. And I will bring my judgment. This to do with church discipline, serious legal issues, and not just hurt feelings. You know, so you've got all sorts of things in there. There's the offended brother, there's serious legal issues, and it's all in here for us to have a look at. I think it's incredible the way it's coming together with fellowship life. Because when you get Christians together and fellas in the same ship, somebody said they took offence at that. Sounded like it was all men. <laughs> Thought, got a problem, darling? You've got an issue with fellas. <laughs> anyway, there we are. So, where do I go first? Um, I just, just, um, quote from Bob Mumford here, talking about being scandalised or taking an offence. There are certain roots in us that make us vulnerable to being scandalized when the Lord or others do something we don't expect. Sometimes it's God. Let's face it, we pray about something, and it doesn't happen. 
and we get offended at God because he hasn't done what we thought he ought to do because after all we've prayed about it haven't we so the three fundamental roots that can cause us to be offended when our expectations aren't met are personal opinion personal advantage and personal convenience So personal opinion is the problem of privately interpreting God's action and written word in a way that is narrowly individualistic and therefore likely to be biased. At the root of strident personal opinion is often an unhealthy desire to be right. Most often the more strongly opinionated a person is the more easily he is offended when things don't go the way he thinks they should. In Matthew, Jesus spoke out against the private interpretations which the Pharisees used to set aside the commandment to honour their fathers and mothers. Some of you may know that, where he says, they say, it was Corban. Yeah, you know, can't... Uh, we had a priceless uh, example of that. They, th th to say it was Corban meant it was dedicated to God, so you couldn't use it for another. But it, in actual fact, they were keeping it to themselves to do something else with uh, Matthew fifteen twelve. Let's just have a quick look at it. His disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you heard you say this? And he says, Everything that my father hasn't planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will go into the ditch. Um, it's not actually the, the, the bit that I wanted, which is where he talks about it being Corban or, or set aside for God. Um, and we had a, an issue... At a little while ago where someone was left some money by their father um, and um, but they had dedicated the whole amount to God and said God it's yours to do with as you choose there then comes up a need and the need was very expensive dental treatment for someone else and God was saying you've got the money you'd you you feel the need. Oh, it's Corban. <laughs> it's set aside. For, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I want you to give the money. Uh, the long and the short of it was, I think they went to Israel, and in <laughs> in the bedroom where they were was a text about Corban, <laughs> and they got convinced that God was actually wanting them to part with this huge amount of money to get this dental treatment done out of dad's money you know I mean we will do that won't we we'll dedicate stuff to God's provided he will use it in the way that we think that he ought to use it you know you can have all of that Lord you can have my life take it father it's yours oh I don't want to do that with it suddenly we've taken it back again <laughs> put yourself in hold yourself out 
that's another issue but still there we are so he doesn't always do things according to our private interpretation of how he should he may not answer a prayer for someone we feel or he may answer a prayer for someone we feel doesn't deserve it or not answer a prayer for someone we feel he do that does deserve it you see so we can get up our nose in all sorts of ways he may withhold himself from us when we want him most and shows up when we expe expect it and le <laughs> require it least. <laughs> Often it seems that sinners and hypocrites are free to do as they please while God's own are disciplined for the least infraction. <laughs> then this person has advantage. You see, scandalon, that the ori origin of the word means to put to catch something by a trap. You're trapped when you're scandalised or offended. You've fallen for the bait in the trap. And the problem of personal advantage seems most frequently to be the bait in the trap of the scandal. The one who's seeking personal advantage asks the question, what's in it for me? Although we'd like to think we're totally pure in our motivations for following the Lord, very often we're guilty of following him, at least in part, as a means to personal prosperity, personal glory, or even fame and excitement. <laughs> Peter is a good example of how personal advantage can become a stumbling block. In Matthew 16, we read that Peter was the rock on which Jesus would build his church. And soon after that, the Lord begins to tell him of his impending arrest and crucifixion. And Peter steps up and says... This must not happen, Lord. You're going the wrong way. And what does God say to him? You are being a stumbling block to me. You're getting in my way. We must be careful that we don't become stumbling blocks to other people. Remember, I've, I've said probably quite a number of times, the reason I don't go to church on the way, one of the reasons I don't go, is that I know I would be a stone of stumbling to the leadership there. So don't go. I don't go because I know I cause them a problem. I don't know why. I walk in, I say nothing, but my very presence can cause them to stumble. They get put off. Um, so I won't go there. So on the surface with Peter, it would seem he's concerned about the personal safety of the Lord. But we must remember this is the same Peter who argued with the other disciples uh, we we were looking in the in the um, in that chapter just now about who was the greatest, and now he sees himself as the cornerstone of the kingdom. And his expectations were that Jesus would vanquish the Roman conquerors, remove the offensive existing religious order, and set up a powerful earthly kingdom. Same thing as John the Baptist expected. John the Baptist said, "Is it you, or do we expect another?" They weren't reading from the same agenda Jesus came with not an agenda that they expected because they were wanting to get free from Roman rule so it's quite subtle how we can be offended about things and this set Peter up for being scandalized or offended Jesus talk of crucifixion was bringing a sudden end to all his personal plans <laughs> thought that was funny that and Jesus told him bluntly, you are a stumbling block to me. 
Peter's desire for personal advantage had become an offence to the Lord Jesus himself. It had become a stumbling block. And then personal convenience. It's a big one. Our personal convenience is a concern that causes us to be offended quite easily. Most of us would prefer not to have our comfortable, self-centred lifestyle interrupted by the inconvenient and uncomfortable demands of the gospel. If we're truly actually going to come into koinonia, which is having all things in common, koin, the word koinon, koi, koini is common in, in the Greek that Alexander the, the Great um, invented, was very precise. If those of you who have listened to Roger know about it. Because if we said the word fire in an army situation, Everybody would fire at will, all over the place. But when the Greek is very precise, it will mean fire at the target, fire at the enemy, fire up there, fire there. That there would be various different ways. Very precise, Koine Greek, very precise language, can't misunderstand it. And that was what was laid out before Jesus came, so the gospel got out very quickly. Absolutely brilliant. Anyway, personal convenience. And it will get uncomfortable because we're going to have to put the needs of other people before ourselves. Um, I love the Father Heart of God teaching. I've, I've been in the healing ministry for a long time, but I know that we have to move beyond that. Having got healed up, we then have to go on to being disciples of Jesus, or we can be followers, or we can believe it, be believers. There's at least three sorts of people. From that time on, many turn back. You see, it, he faces you up with a challenge and you turn back because that is too hard. I've often said to him, I mean, look at Moses. He didn't get into the promised land because he lost it. Anger was a problem with Moses if you look at it right from the start. He got an uncontrolled part of himself uh, that finally let him down. And so he didn't get into seeing the promised land. And I, I say to the Lord often, you know, how far am I going to get before I either blow it or say I can't do that? You know? Um, we can sing things but not realise what we're actually committing to. You know, all to Jesus I surrender, I surrender all. This is all good. I'll just call in a few of those now. <laughs> and you suddenly find yourself up to your neck in alligators, really. Uh, we stand up, we go forward for these things. We haven't got a clue what it actually means in terms of personal commitment. But in these days, he's fronting the church up with it and he's saying, come on, church. Um, what, did he, what did he call it? Not weekend warriors. No, 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 no. Chocolate soldiers and, yeah, weekend warriors or something like that, Graham Cook. But you get to choose all the way along the line and the Lord knows exactly what choices you're going to make. Um, but the fact is that none of us will come into that inheritance unless we make the right choices. As I've said before, we cannot expect a signs and wonders ministry and the earth moving and prayers being answered in such a way that as are miraculous unless we pay the cost. There is a cost. So once we're healed up and on our way, God starts the discipleship process, fronting us up with the decisions personal convenience 
For this reason, the rich young ruler, for example, turned away from Jesus. And if we were to take seriously Jesus' commands about the poor, the orphan and the widow, we might find our own lifestyles inconveniently interrupted. Like the Jews of Jesus' day, we find it easier to ignore some commands of the Lord rather than be scandalized by an interruption of our comfortable little worlds. Offended, you see. Put the word offended in where we talk about scandalo. Nothing about the gospel message is convenient. Nothing is comfortable about bearing a cross. And for many, this reason many believers are offended today when men of God declare the demands of the law, the obedience and the sacrifice required by the gospel. We'd much rather hear about God's blessing, prosperity and care. They're all there, but so is the other side of the coin. You know, and if you live in Matthew 6.33, which is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else that they seek out there will be given to you. Matthew 6.33, I lived with it for years. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else, be added. Concerns for personal opinion, personal advantage and personal convenience are at the root of our fallen nature. They're the giants, if you like, and they're the hooks. Jesus spoke directly to this problem in Mark 9, 43-47, when he taught that it was better to lose a hand, a foot or an eye than to be scandalised. And this teaching may be offensive to the modern mind, but it presents a crucial truth. Those who are not prepared to restrict without reservation what they do, the hand, where they go, the foot, and what they watch and desire, the eye, are setting themselves up to be offended. Our natural desire for personal opinion, advantage and convenience are the bait which can spring the enemy's trap causing us to lose the opportunity to walk further with the Lord. And then he goes on to say, what are the symptoms of being scandalized or offended? I like actually in, in this little book, it's called uh, Giving and Receiving of Offense here. And he talks about, excuse me, what happens when we uh, respond or embrace an offence. The first thing that happens, we experience a measurable increase in agitation, irritation, moodiness, touchiness, and we become increasingly impossible to please. He then goes on to say, do not ask me how I have identified these five symptoms. I did not read them in a book. <laughs> Then we are inclined to collect offences. We wait for or anticipate the next broken promise, lie or disappointment, which proves and reinforces our offence. True or not? We have generally a negative perception of life, so we question and re-examine people's opinions and statements, even those that are simple and well-meaning. This turns us in upon ourselves. 
The next thing that happens is we begin unavoidably to experience a downward cycle of cynicism and self-defeat that is based on the strange paradox of paranoia that says, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not after you. <laughs> we begin to enter the world of suspicion. And this is the Eros serpent eating its own tail. I love the way he says that. Because when we come to look at Agape and Eros, we'll see where all this fits in as well, because this is the whole of the Eros serpent. This is self-referential, self-centeredness, turning in on itself and proving to itself that they were right in the first place. Most of the body of Christ actually w operates in the gift of suspicion, I have noticed. It's not discernment, it's suspicion. That's why I can't go to church on the way. They operate in the gift of suspicion. They have made some sort of value judgment about me, and every time I walk in, that gets reinforced as she comes again. Maverick, doing her own thing. God's not with her. So I don't want to cause them to stumble, do I? I don't want them seeing this poisonous thing in their midst. Suspicion. Once the offence from whatever source has been deeply and completely received, the only thing that could possibly relieve our discomfort is to remove the perceived source of the offence from the face of the earth. Murder. I mean, we laugh, but that's the ultimate, isn't it? What happened with Cain and Abel? Cain was offended that Abel's offering was received and his wasn't. So he went out and slit Abel's throat. You want an offering? There it is. Have that. But murder is not far from all of us. If we think that we are not murderous in our hearts, we don't understand ourselves. You know, because in all of us, when we're really crossed and it really steps on our toe and it gets in our space, the ultimate would be... When we were offended because we failed to get what we wanted when we wanted, abuse, violence and eventual actual thoughts of murder follow because we want the offender off the face of the earth. This includes believers. And he goes on to tell a story, which is horrendous, really. Some years ago, I was invited to Peru by a long-term missionary. By the time I arrived, he had left the country. Evidently, he had a 12-year-old servant girl who kept serving him from the right side after repeatedly being told to serve from the left. Eventually, he became so offended that one day he jumped up from the table in anger and beat her with his fists. She died of internal trauma a few days later. Obviously his career as a missionary was terminated. Offence destroyed him. I wish I could have understood the principle of offence as clearly then as I do now. It goes on to talk about the offended disciples. Do you remember they wanted to call down fire? And God, Jesus said to him, you don't know what spirit you are of. Shall we call on down fire? See, they thought they got the power to do it, didn't they? Good, good. So, offence.
And, and I'll just continue with this because for whatever reason uh, the Lord wants it said. Here are some personal observations, Bob Mumford again, of the unintended consequences of offence that I have made over the years. These are not absolutes. Those offended at God discover a hidden capacity to crucify him afresh. Those who are offended at society are likely to be loners, becoming increasingly isolated, resulting in varying degrees of sociopathic responses. And he says the most recent example is the BTK killer who, who must have been someone in America who was an elder in, his church, in, in the church. Must have gone wild with a, with a gun, I expect. Those offended at parents discover themselves wrestling with personal anarchy, rebellion and a tendency towards crime. The offended wife or husband will settle for nothing less than divorce, almost always accompanied by bitter animosity. Offended females lean towards masculinity and lesbianism. Offended males lean towards effeminacy and homosexuality. Those offended at the system, the company or co-workers are capable of almost anything and give meaning to the term go postal. Now I don't know what that means. <laughs> if anyone understands it, perhaps you can tell me. Those offended by the church often reject God as father because of the church's failure. Offence is probably the most identifiable source of depression leading to violence, abuse, divorce and murder. For one who is deeply offended, reconciliation is out of the question. The offender must be removed from the face of the earth. And of course that's what happened to Jesus, isn't it? They had to remove him. They were so offended by him, they had to get him off the face of the earth. They couldn't stand it. So that's something that happens in offence. And how do we know if we're being scandalised in a given situation? He says here, I would identify two symptoms which can help diagnose the problem. Disillusionment. Before we can be disillusioned, we must first have certain illusions. These may include an unrealistic image or idea about who God is and what we should expect from him. And this is the most frequent, I think an unrealistic opinion of what other Christians should be and do. And once we're walking in this kind of false understanding, we're immediately set up for disillusionment. Uh, Graham tells the story that a man came up to him and said that he was really disillusioned in Graham, and Graham said, thank goodness for that, you know, because you must have had an illusion in the first place. <laughs> now we can really start and get down to the nitty-gritty. How often do people say, I'm disillusioned with church? I spoke to someone the other day and they said, you know, I'm totally disillusioned with church. So I said to him, well, you had an illusion in the first place, didn't you? And that made him laugh. I said, you thought you were coming into something where everybody was perfect, didn't you? He said, yes. I said, you found they were worse in there than they were outside. He said, yes. I said, join the club. That's about the size of it. I said, we're all, you know, works in progress. Problem comes when we don't realise we're being works in progress and we don't actually comply with what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in us. Don't do it like that, do it like this. We won't move over from the the place that we think we're justified in, the, the stance we're justified in taking. Um, and sometimes he has to chip us off of that place and that can be painful. 
We may at first believe that the early followers of Jesus were charmed, enthralled and delighted by his gracious words, miracles and the love of the Father which flowed for him, from him. The longer they followed him, however, the more they found the things he said and did to be less enchanting than they first thought. At one point, Jesus said to his followers, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you've no life in yourself. This was hardly enchanting to many of the disciples. <laughs> Jesus said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Evidently it did. It's recorded, this is the point at which, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They were disenchanted with him because his ministry was not all broken bread and multiplied fishes. <laughs> he had some unpleasant things to say to them and these didn't fit the image of the Messiah they had created for themselves. One of the most difficult problems to deal with in Christians is what Bob Mumford calls Christian idolatry. Second commandment, thou shalt not make any images. I understand this to mean both metal images and mental images. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> it's often easier to break up little copper bales than to bring down some of the mental images Christians have of the Lord and what he should or shouldn't do. You see, we've all got a picture of the Lord of how we think he is. Oh, my Jesus, my Jesus is like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> because it's a picture that they painted for themselves. And you can either have your Jesus who's got a stick behind his back ready to wallop you at any given moment. And that is that is usually comes from the leadership that you've first come into in church. Because they represent Jesus. And so you're seeing this and thinking that's what he must be like. Or you've got this Father Christmas type figure that gives you anything you want, dear. Live your life your way you like, you know. All sins forgiven. Yes, it is. But there's a the matter of the inheritance, isn't there? So, mental images, what he should or shouldn't do. Quite often, these false images set up in our minds become a source of disillusionment once God doesn't fit the image we have created for him. So disillusionment often comes when our personal opinion, advantage or convenience have been confronted by reality. How often have we been victimized by great and glorious visions of what we or our group will, quote, accomplish for the Lord? When the Lord doesn't cooperate by fulfilling our expectations, we find ourselves scandalized and doubting the character of God. Disengagement, that's the next thing that happens, is the, the natural response of distancing ourselves from an offending person or party. We should note here that before we can be scandalized by someone, we must have first been attra attracted to them. The Pharisees were attracted to Jesus because of the miracles and the wisdom with which he taught. The disciples were attracted because he was a source of life and grace. These were all legitimate reasons for following Jesus, but once the offence came, the attraction was lost, and they began to disengage themselves from the Lord. I mean, the classic case of uh, offence is uh, Naaman and Elisha. When uh, Naaman comes uh, to see if uh, Elisha will heal him, uh, and uh, Naaman 
Elisha sends the servant out to tell him to go and wash in the river. And he says, well, I thought at least he would come out, pass his hand over the spot, call upon his God and heal me. He was offended because he thought that he was important enough for the prophet himself to come out. So the first response that Naaman had was offence and he wasn't going to do what he was told, which would have brought his healing. How often with us is the first response is offence, we won't do what we're told which will bring our healing. Because it doesn't come the way we want it to come. Go and wash in a dirty old river. Do that. So, you know, we, we do it his way or we don't do it at all. If we don't do it his way, it doesn't happen. Um, and it, it, it will humble us. It will sometimes humiliate us. I remember, one, I'll finish with this, one of the um, leaders at the community church said to me quite seriously once, God would never humiliate you. And I thought, you've got to be joking. Of course he would. Because he will allow you to be humiliated because if you feel humiliated, you've done got pride. Because you're feeling a fool. And God's got to deal with that pride in you. So humiliation will be part of it. I mean, I've said to you, I've been hung up publicly two or three times. Who's that? Uh, oh, yes, could they ring back? Yeah. Here we go again. wonder what they've lost this time. Um, anyway, there we are. Uh, humiliate, yes, he will humiliate you. He will hang you up. Uh, to dry. It's all part of the flesh being dealt with. You know, the, the, this, the, it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In the same way, the followers of Jesus were offended. The prophet, you see, wanted to, Naaman wanted to turn his back on the prophet. And in the same way, the followers of Jesus were offended when he told them that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood and they walk no more with him. This is why, as I've said to the Lord, you know, I don't want to come to this place. I know that I'm likely to, but pull me through, Holy Spirit, if I get to that place where I'm offended at what God asked me to do. Because it will cut into the flesh. He says he's convinced that many backsliders begin their downward journey because of a stumbling block that's put in their way. And once they're scandalized and unable to deal with the offense, they begin to separate themselves from God, his people, or both. And many start their journey simply because a group of Christians do not measure up to the standards that they themselves have set. And then they distance themselves from all of God's people. And such isolation ultimately results in a departure from active fellowship with the Lord himself. I mean, we know the truth of this. There's an awful lot more about offence and one thing and another, but just for some reason or other, I just felt that the Lord was speaking about offence and how we've actually got to know to, how to deal with it. Because when we come into uh, fellowship, life, there are going to be offences, God's going to make sure there are, so that he can teach us how to walk through those things. Um, how to 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 address the issues? We don't walk away from it. You know, uh, if someone offends you or upsets you, then 
maybe you, the 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 uh, thing to do is to say, look, when you said that, I felt like this, because it's ninety nine percent certain that the person saying the thing did not intend to offend you or upset you or hurt you. So the it's the right response. If if I upset someone inadvertently, might probably be doing it right now, saying these things. It's the proper response is from the person offended. When you said that, I felt like this. So then we can talk about why they felt like that. Where did, what it hit into? I didn't intend to hurt you. I mean, Joyce and I uh, are frequently... The, the, the other day I was at the computer doing something and um, she came in to ask me so I was right engrossed in what I was doing. I was a bit sharp with her. So two minutes later I was out and there saying, I'm, I'm sorry, I was sharp with you, I didn't intend to be. I was fully concentrating on what I was doing and I was fearful that the break in my concentration would mean I wouldn't actually get this thing done. But I didn't allow it to go on. Immediately, knew I'd done wrong, apologised. You know, We need to be ones who are quick to apologise and actually, if someone perceives we're in the wrong, just take the blame. It's not worth dying for, as, as the, the guy said about the batteries at the, at the checkout. You know, do I die for these batteries? Are these batteries worth dying for? He could have won the argument, was what he was saying, but was it worth it for the sake of harmony? And as soon as he let his argument go down, it always takes two. It takes two of us to argue. One of us has got to decide, I'm dying in this, it doesn't matter. Whether you're right or not is not the issue. The issue is, what's the way of love? What's the way of community? What's the way of love? Time and time again, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the biggest one here. I'm wrong. And I'm, I am wrong. <laughs> and Joyce will say, it's like this. No, 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 I'm absolutely certain it's like this. And then, a bit later on, you're right. <laughs> And I'm learning now, and I say to her, well, I think it's like this, but you're usually right. <laughs> so I'm going to say that, yes, that's the right thing. It's much, much nicer to just bow the knee. And something dies in you every time you do, you know. For the sake of not having strife all around, we should be the most peaceful people on the earth. So how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity like warm oil the oil of anointing that comes down the anointing will not come God will not anoint the flesh he won't anoint the flesh because he is spirit and spirit and flesh are incompatible two can't live together I think it was Bob Mumford that said the Lord said you and I are incompatible and I don't change <laughs> Guess who's got to move? When the Holy Spirit stands on your feet, Jim, somebody else said, Jim Ripley, move your feet. So it's about bowing the knee in the circumstance even when you are right. This is what pleases God. That we actually choose to move in agape and not in eros. It's a conscious choice. Bite the bullet, bow the knee, submit to God and take the road the line of least resistance don't argue it's not worth it what's the what's it going to have for eternal value
and watch the tongue so much damage done in church with that I mean it's, it's just horrendous what uh, was going on in this prayer meeting that I was told about and twice I forget the second person I remember the first one I forget the second person who spoke about oh yeah went to a prayer meeting and not going to go again not going to go again it's like a ping pong match um, you know, oh Lord, you know, do this and this and this. Oh, and by the way, Lord, see to my brother over there, he needs help. You know, this sort of thing. Just, It's just like getting at somebody in a different way. And as I said to the people, do you think that God's hearing those prayers? The answer is no. Hitting the ceiling, coming down, not dwelling together in unity. When the 120 were together, they were all together in one accord in an upper room. One mind. They all felt the same way. They'd all put the differences aside as a, um, an actual act. Put the differences aside. There wouldn't be denominations if we didn't have differences that are still extant. And God's breaking down those walls. Because we are one body, one church. The head is risen. I made someone stumble with that <laughs> at the weekend when I said the grave cloths were in two different places. The head the grave clothes for the head were wrapped in one place and the body in the other. What do you mean the head's risen? Is there a head floating about? <laughs> I said, no, sweetheart, not not a literal, not a literal head tucked underneath his arm. It's the head of the body, is Jesus. So can you understand that the head should give the instructions? But so often the body is rolling around on the earth here, doing just what it likes, with no reference at all to what the head's telling it to do. I've got to look it up. I'm not sure if it's arche or kafale. There are two words for head. Kafale is is this sort of head, and arche is like rulership. So I must look it up and see which word it is that's that's used there where it where it says. Anyway, there we are, five to one. Father, thank you. Lord, you had your reasons for wanting to speak in this way this morning. I pray that you'll bless the ears of the hearers. Father, we can't help but see ourselves in some of it and determine not to be the same. Father, thank you for your presence with us. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from us. We need your Holy Spirit. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you for the food that you're about to provide for us too. Please bless it to our bodies and last to your service in Jesus' mighty name.